0: Okay then, Fictoplasm episode 94, The Anubis Gates by Tim Powers. So, The Anubis Gates is Tim Powers' masterful yet pulpy time travel romp through Regency England with um, detours in Cairo and the Restoration Era. Uh, It's full of magic, it's weird and famous characters, paradoxes, coincidences, um, swashbuckling, secret societies, thieves and beggars, werewolves and elementals, you you name it, it's got a lot. It's copyright 1983. My copy is the 1997 Ace Books imprint that I probably bought in a Barnes & Noble because um, I couldn't find a copy in the UK. I remember looking for it for ages. Now, later it was gathered into the Fantasy Masterworks series along with other Tim Powers books including The Drawing of the Dark and the Fault Lines trilogy which includes *Last Call*. Um, it's been included in Cheryl Morgan's list of twelve classic steampunk books, despite being nothing of the sort. But it is kind of—it's kind of in that space of you know romantic swashbuckling steampunk esqueness. Sort of. It's also not Victoriana, of course. Um, Dave Langford apparently had this to say about it in White Dwarf 80 which I'll have to take as read because I've not actually got that issue to hand but he said this profound it isn't but the Anubis Gates offers terrific entertainment and much stealable scenario background for Call of Cockburn or whatever that game is called which I think is spot on. This is a romantic time traveling romp uh, and that's the spirit in which I'm going to treat it. And as always, I'm gonna cover the synopsis, which you know I'll try not to give too much away, um, then make some remarks on the gameable elements and finish off with some other relevant media. Here we go. So here's the premise, time travel is possible but as a consequence of a magical event in the early 1800s, which resulted in the formation of the Anubis gates that ripple out in time, connecting earlier and later points in time. Uh, The possibility to travel in time to specific times and places can be mathematically calculated. It's kind of like an interference pattern. The earliest it's possible to go back to is around 1500. The latest is 2116 the actual mechanism is uh, involves being bombarded by very high frequency radiation so that your physical matter becomes quotes honorary tachyons you know at least that's the, that's how the explorers from 1983 put it although you know it, it's fantasy it's magic now there's a lot of characters in several groups but they're all really well signposted and grouped together so it's really not hard to follow We'll start with Brendan Doyle. He's our point of view character, an American professor from 1983. I think he's about 35. Um, he's an expert on the poetry of the Regency Age, including Coleridge, Byron and William Ashbliss. Now, the explorers are led by Jay Cochrane Darrow, who's a tycoon with terminal cancer. And Darrow has contracted Doyle as his Coleridge expert because he intends to take a bunch of temporal tourists back to hear a Coleridge lecture, well, at least. That's his cover story. Uh, basically, he's got an entourage of people around him to explore the past. Then we have the magicians, um, including the master, who is supposedly the most powerful magician in the world, and his agents on in different countries. So the one in the UK is office Fiki, um, who's also known as Dogface Joe, as a consequence of the thing that happened in the 1800s, that, that they basically tried to summon a god and... He went crazy. Um, Dr. Romani is also in England, and he's actually a car or a duplicate of Dr. Romanelli, who's another of the master's agents in Turkey. So these are all magicians. Then there are the natives to Regency England, most of whom are involved in the world of organised begging. Now, when Doyle gets stranded, he falls in briefly with Copenhagen Jack's lot, where he meets Jackie, who is actually a woman called Jacqueline in disguise, she becomes one of the other primary characters and her goal is to kill Dogface Joe, the magician that killed her fiancé Colin, by swapping bodies with him. And the other group of beggars has a lot more screen time and this is Horobin's crew. Horobin is this horrifying clown on stilts and also a magician to boot, being close to Dr Romany. And he runs the Rat's Castle, where he physically modifies members of his crew so that they can um, beg authentically, as well as conjuring monsters, which he then keeps in his dungeon. He calls them his mistakes. Horebin is probably the most evil of the antagonists, you know, the the, the callous way that he just uses people. Um, and finally, a couple of other groups to mention um, there's the Mamluks in Egypt, uh, and that is, um, I think, a some sort of knightly order i think i'm correctly saying or or the equivalent of a knightly order arising from slaves and in opposition of Muhammad Ali and then there's the Antares Brotherhood who in the Regency period are well past their prime they're a bit crap But 150 years earlier, they're like hardcore magician hunters who are aware that their opponents exist in different spots in time and they have certain talismans to protect them against magic. Kind of like a Restoration X-Files, I guess. So then when you talk about narrative hooks, there are really two hooks. And and one concerns events from February 1802, where the acolytes of an ancient sorcerer, the master, attempt to conjure a god into being. And all this happens in the prologue. And this forms the basis for the time travel setup with ripples of that sorcerous incursion reflecting forward and backwards through time, yada yada. But the second hook concerns our protagonist, Brendan Doyle, from the present day, which is 1983. Uh, he's employed by Darrow, employing him as a Coleridge expert, as I mentioned, um, to accompany him in his merry band of time tourists back to 1810 to hear Coleridge speak. So. After some diversions early in the narrative about the house of, it, of, of which it happens, you know, these honorary tachyons, um, high-frequency fre- high radiation, the idea that certain spots in history are completely dead to normal physics and um, magic can be done much more easily then. Um, they all appear in 1810, they attend a lecture, and at the point when they plan to return, Doyle is abducted and misses his trip home. So that's the real hook into the narrative here. Doyle is stranded. And from here, the adventure really starts. His abductors are Dr. Romany and his cronies seeking the secrets of the Anubis Gates. And they're prepared to torture Doyle for them, and they do. Uh, Doyle escapes this initial abduction and suddenly he's on the streets in London. You know, he's, and he's a soft and pampered 20th century academic, so he really struggles initially. First, he falls in with the beggars, where he meets Jackie, who's posing as a young man but you know, stands out um, because she has this remarkable classical education, uh, which is out of place for a young criminal. Uh, he's lucky that another beggar called Skate steers him to Copenhagen Jack's rather than Horribin's crew, although it doesn't take long for Horribin to come back into the frame, as he's tasked by Dr Romany to recapture Doyle alive. Then we get a second faction coming into focus as Darrow's group appear back in 1810, communicating by whistling the first few notes of the Beatles yesterday, which is how Doyle picks up on their trail. Now, we, we learn that after the first excursion, Darrow took the crew back with the intention of living there permanently. And then there's the third mystery, which is that of Ficky or, or dogface joe who's been swapping bodies with great regularity anybody he inhabits grows fur rapidly so he's leaving this trail of cast off bodies uh, which you know lead to sightings of these great furred apes roaming around london which are tragically you know the, to be the short-lived victims they, they don't live much longer and while this is going on as well as uncovering various mysteries, Doyle's also trying to use his knowledge of history to his advantage. In particular, he wants to make contact with William Ashbless. Now, he wrote a biography on William Ashbless, so he knows all the dates of where he famously turned up and wrote certain pieces. But unfortunately, in every location where he expects Ashbless to be, the latter never turns up. And this makes him wonder if his presence is actually affecting the timeline, you know, or, or if he's even in an alternate timeline. And also, Jackie gets caught up in the adventure, as you would hope that, you know, the point of view characters converge on the adventure for the common good. You know, she's driven by her own agenda of trying to slay Dogface Joe. And she ends up rescuing Doyle from his pursuers, that's Horribin and Dr Romany. Then she gets abducted herself by Horribin's people for her association with Doyle. And from her point of view, we get a protagonist's eye on what the villains are doing. So this is a novel constructed in two books. And the first book concludes with Doyle being one of the victims of Dogface Joe, although he survives, which not many people do. Of course he survives. But then we move on to the second book. And at that point, Doyle takes a much more proactive and confident role. You know, he he swapped bodies, which, yes, it's a slight spoiler, I know, um, but we knew it was coming. Uh, So he swapped bodies, and he's no longer the person Horribin and Romani are looking for. And also, he's got gotten shot of the pneumonia that was in his old body that you know, he, he might not have been long for the world anyway. And from here, he basically takes the fight to Romany and the associated conspiracy. You know, there's a lot of really great highlights here, including he um, goes back in time to the 1660s to join the Anateus Brotherhood in in battling the, the magical foes with sword and pistol on a frozen Thames. Um, There's a a magical duplicate of Lord Byron who forms part of the master's plans that Doyle strikes up a friendship with. And Doyle is abducted to Egypt to meet the master and, you know, be given the plot dump of the true purpose of the master's plans, which is to alter time to ensure that England stays out of the African continent and never interferes with Egypt. There's also some great stuff about how magicians can't touch soil. Um, how they gradually lose mass over time through magic and that causes them to ascend to the moon. And eventually like the the magical ante is really raised uh, and there are appearances of Ra's solar barge and the serpent Apep. And at the same time we resolve the more earthly situations around various villains, you know, Dogface, Joe, Horribin and others all eventually get their comeuppance as is appropriate for this kind of pulpy adventure. The pacing is great throughout, the tension rises steadily Um, Never a dull moment. Lots of humour in it as well. Powers also incorporates historical figures like Byron and Coleridge um, in a really satisfying way. They're not just window dressing. They actually participate in the plot right the way to the climax. Um, I should also mention that there are other mentions of real historical events. The Marmaluk massacre by Muhammad Ali is 1811, according to Wikipedia. And the, um, the failed rebellion by uh, James Duke of Monmouth against James II in the 1680s is part of the plot that Romany is trying to put in place by going back in time to that era. So the major magical and non-magical plots are very nicely tied up at the end. But then for the denouement, we see what Doyle has made of his new life. And there is one mystery left which is about how he dies. Doyle knows a lot about the body he's now inhabiting. And he also knows how it dies. And so he's just waiting for the day. And this too is resolved in an epilogue. In a way that's you know, you you can kind of see how it's going to happen. But even so, um the the thing that's really interesting about that, and I'll come to it in the um in the remarks on the role playing bits, is the view of determinism and the, the fatalism involved and the way that people view you know, their, their own destiny. But overall, great fantasy novel, great adventure novel, lots and lots of food for thought for role-playing, so that's what I'm going to go into now. So there are three things I want to talk about mainly. There are time travel, magic, and history. And I'm going to talk about those in reverse order. I'm going to talk about history first. I don't know very much about history at all. Um, If I needed to know something about history, I would, uh, you know, I'd research it quite carefully, but I'd also pick the time and place very carefully, um, particularly if it was a time travel setting. Um, I wouldn't particularly want to run a historical setting with a predetermined set of events, certainly not with the players in those positions because of course that removes all agency. On the other hand I can see the point of setting a historical game with external observers from other times seeing something that happens and the consequences of them interfering or not interfering and the surprises that come along. The problem with history I guess is you are always at the mercy of the facts and the fact that your players might be better informed than you are. Um, And I would just uh, plan around that so that that conflict didn't come up and that I had enough knowledge. But one of the things about the time travel plot is uh, it's kind of assisted by the mode of time travel. So rather than having a historical game, historical time travel where you can go anywhere you like, there are some very, very specific juncture points here in time and place. And this gives you a lot of control over the environment which you have to research and which you have to present to the uh, the rest of the players. And uh, and so you can pitch it much more effectively. The Anubis gates themselves, talking about the time travel, is they, they are basically dead spots in time and place where magic works for a time and technology doesn't. So um, electric motors won't work, for example. But uh, the the thinness of reality at that stage allows you to uh, you know, travel in time. The explorers actually use things called mobile hooks, which are little cl- uh, bands clamped to their arms. And the idea is that they are propelled backwards or forwards in time by a burst of energy. And then if they're in the right spot... When that window closes, they're snapped back by their mobile hook as if they're on an elastic band. So they don't need something at the other end providing the same amount of energy. Otherwise, obviously, the conceit wouldn't work. They're not taking a TARDIS with them. They're going through a portal instead. Uh, and of course, it also uh, that setup presents us with our hook, which is what if you miss your opportunity to get back in that time frame? Well, what you have to do is you have to find another one. And you have to hope that there's one close enough that you can get to within your lifetime. This throws up some really interesting uh, ways that the characters respond to time travel. Um, Because for one thing, if you know that these spots at a particular time and place are always available, no matter which entry point you use in the ripples through time, you can always get back to a certain spot over and over again. But you can't just pop up anywhere over and over again so you could send multiple versions of yourself back to do lots and lots of different tasks at the same time if you chose to there is a this is never really tested there there was a throwaway remark um that Darrow's second expedition came back to 1810 at the same time, and they were all very tempted to go and look in on the Coleridge Lecture in the private rooms. They didn't do that. So it's an open question as to what would happen if you witnessed yourself, if they witnessed you. Could you interfere with your own destiny that way? What problems would it cause? We don't know. But good open questions for that kind of game. Um, But yeah, so you could send multiple versions of yourself back in time to witness exactly the same point in time through multiple different perspectives. And I thought that that was quite interesting because it also means that you have effectively it's not quite a locked room but it is, it is very much a controlled environment which you can plot out. You could I mean you you could treat it like a sandbox. You 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 tell the players that okay you uh, you can go back in time to this Uh, this place and you have all this information you can choose to go wherever you want and explore it as long as you get back to your exit point you can come back and do more of that later but the more times you do it the more risk you run into yourself and but on the other hand the more that you'll know about the environment so the better armed you will be for the uh, for the second journey back i mean that's not a bad scenario idea if you're just going to focus on one period of time uh, you could say um, uh, that each person each time they go back, you increase the risk of bumping into yourself and whenever people bump into themselves, well what happens? there might be a conflict, a a metaphysical conflict as the universe tries to write itself over who's actually the real person. you know because you're not duplicates, you're not car that um, a duplicate of yourself. you are yourself in a slightly different timeline. There is, of course, the question that um, uh, that Doyle raises about: well, am I actually affecting the timelines by just being here? And that's a good question. Um, he's not, and there's never any challenge to some of the paradoxes that spring up. I mean, there are a couple of real, really fun, silly paradoxes that happen. They just they just happen. Uh, they're not explained. Um, Don't think too hardly about them. Just go and enjoy it. I did very much. Uh, But, I mean, if you do create a paradox by being there, if you create, say, a a circular loop, um, you can do all sorts of things like create people that history remembers who never really existed, or situations, or um, you could be working against future versions of yourself whose perspective has changed and therefore their strategy has changed. And you don't see this first time around, um, but you might see this second time around. Or if you set it up that your PCs have gone back in time and then they encounter themselves who are actually working against them, of course, they won't know why that is. But you don't know how many times those people have gone back in time. So you're not actually obligated to have the next trip back directly address those. You just know it's going to happen sometime in the future. So that could be kind of interesting to flip the PCs into NPCs and antagonists in that way. Why would they flip? Well, if you want to gamify it, um, I think you'd have to have all of the characters described in terms of uh, what their ideals are about and and what they want to achieve by travelling in time and whether or not they're bothered by the problems that they will inevitably cause. And some people will be concerned and will be conscientious. And maybe they'll flip early. And some people won't care. They'll be very selfish. So maybe they'll never flip. Maybe they'll always say, well, I, I do what I want is the whole of the law. Other thoughts about this time travel. I guess that um, going back to the point that you have set places in time, if you wanted to do time travel between certain points then and and revisit places over and over again you've got the same set of constraints on the actual place it happens and therefore you've got the same set of advantages that you can set up that particular area as a sandbox or a front or whatever with a certain number of npcs doing certain things that you know will happen at that time i mean that that again would work in a scenario designer's favor and so that's why i think this is a particularly interesting um, example of time travel that really gives you a lot of interesting things to do with time travel rather than tie yourself in knots, which I guess there is the risk there. But again, just like everything else, you have to be mindful of the potential for causing paradoxes and the effects of people meeting each other, uh, the effects of accidentally or on purpose upsetting known events. So, yeah, on the whole, I think this is an extremely workable form of time travel. Um, A lot of fun. Doesn't require special equipment. People will tend to snap back from the point that they entered if the circumstances are right. So you have these short-term excursions back to another time, and then as long as you get back to the place you should be, you can be yanked back to where you should be, and you can visit again and again and again. Not a bad idea for a scenario, frankly. All right, so the final thing I want to talk about is magic. Magic is um, its very point and click. I mean, it's very D&D in this. Uh, they have this all these wonderful offensive animation spells and stinking clouds and soul transference spells and, and, and this, that, and the other, creating homunculi. we out of um, the special clay, this pout, uh, which is, um, I think I pronounced that right. I mean, this pout, I, I assume it's got the same root as the pout nateru which is the tree of life which i think is strongly related to the Kabbalistic tree of life or the Kabbalistic tree of life is a representation of that because of the the designs that i've seen of it but what powers does is he has certain egyptian sounding names for spell components so there's this pout which is this Magical clay, as I said, uh, if you want to make a double, then you get blood from the original person. You put it in this magic clay, and the double grows from it. Um, and um, you can use other things to... You, you can shape it into other things. Horabin has a whole load of uh, tiny homunculi. Uh, he calls them his spoon-sized boys, and they've been fashioned from this magical clay. But really, it's D&D-style spells. It's not difficult to take that from any role-playing game and insert it and i really like the idea of taking something so cartoonish and high fantasy as D&D spells and then saying what happens if they if these are available in regency england i think that's a great idea rather than you know having a a new magic system that sort of tries to be more realistic and so why, why make it realistic why not just make it pulpy uh, because what matters is not the spell that you're casting. What matters is what it does to the environment and what people think about it and the adventures that appear as a result. Other comments on the Egyptian cosmology for this. Um, there's a mention, This uh, Romani is Dr. Romanelli's car, so he's this duplicate. Now, my understanding, I think it's in the Encyclopedia Britannica where I read this, is that car is sometimes erroneously translated as double and that might be where Powers is going with this. It's a bit more complicated than that. It's, I think it's the bar, car, and something else. I, mean, the, the, I think there's nine components, and I think they're quite useful, usefully listed in Mummy, World of Darkness, although I'm not sure if there's any errors in that, so I'm, I'm not going to go there. But um, it's a good enough word. It's an Egyptian-sounding word, and it does make sense that um, a car is something where you've taken not only the physical form but the the thoughts and experiences of ev- of of the person and duplicated those entirely and that's what you get for example with lord byron in this he's not actually the lord byron he's a car of lord byron and he's been mentally conditioned to do certain things with the with the intention that he's going to be a political assassin um which doesn't work out because when Doyle gets hold of him and strikes up a friendship, he basically turns him into Lord Byron. He breaks the conditioning by talking to him about poetry. And that, that, that's, a, that's a lot of fun in that bit. But um, yeah, the the car is kind of interesting as well. I guess if you wanted to specifically pick up the Egypt theme, then you might want to look into Egyptian cosmology, the Egyptian, the, the Pound Notero, um and the other bits and pieces to make things seem authentic but really get real you you you're basically picking out D spells and then inserting them into um uh, early modern and and later historical setting one of the last things i want to mention about the magic though is what the magicians have to give up in order to do magic and this is really interesting because their magic's really powerful i mean they they can they can blow things up. They can um, they can animate objects to uh, to to fight other people. They can uh, produce deathly clouds of gas. But uh, the first thing is, Earth is the enemy of magic, so they can't set foot on Earth without extreme pain. Uh, and it's even if if you're grounded to Earth, then magic won't affect you. So these where well, the the Antares Brotherhood. Um, are basically these magic hunters. They've all got a little chain attached to the heel of their right boot, and that seems to ground them to Earth and basically protects them to a greater or lesser extent from magic. And um, and another consequence is, though, if you're on water, then you're screwed. And you fight a wizard on water, they're going to win. Um, But um, they can't set foot on Earth without pain, which is uh, why Horobin goes on stilts, for example. And also, they lose mass over time. Now, the, the idea is that a car is actually a short-lived being anyway, and it will gradually lose mass. And the idea is they start to float up into the air. There's nothing that can hold them to the Earth. Um, there's a really interesting side bit, which is about uh, the relationship between sorcery and the moon. And the idea is that um, you know, some sorcerers just evaporate into nothing. That's what happens. They lose more and more mass, and one day they just, you know, they, they, they disintegrate entirely. But the greatest of the sorcerers basically strike a balance of what they're doing between floating upwards and staying connected to the earth. And when they've transcended to a certain level, but they're still keeping their body together because they're good enough to do that. Basically, um, if they lose contact with the earth, they'll shoot up to the moon. And there's this whole bit of of the the story that isn't really explained about sorcerers and having a relationship with the moon and traveling to the moon i don't know enough about egyptian cosmology to know if that's a if that's a reference to something that powers if powers is alluding to um egyptian magic but i thought it was just just fantastic the idea that sorcerers are in pain if they touch the floor it's harder and harder for them to move about because they can't actually walk on the ground at all. They don't have enough mass to stay on the Earth, um, and in moonlight they're even lighter. So there's a there's this connection with the moon there as well. I thought was interesting. So what's the moon like? Is it a collection of sorcerer's souls, or, or you know, sorcerer's retirement home, or something like that? Not sure. Very evocative though. Lots of fun to read. Um. Oh, I did want to say one other thing. About time travel just to backtrack and that's about fatalism so that's kind of important Um, all throughout the story Doyle knows the life story of the body he's now inhabiting and he knows that the character doesn't die to a particular time so as a result he he treats it like an inescapable fate but at the same time he also treats it like a cheat code because he says well I'm not going to die here and I know that uh I, the body I'm inhabiting, is going to be seen in four months' time elsewhere you know, with with hands and feet and eyes intact. So I'm not going to come to any great injury here. I may as well just throw myself into it. And I think that might be one of the one of the reasons when you know, he becomes bolder and more swashbuckly like because he feels he, he's really invulnerable. And then there are a couple of things where that is strongly challenged. I talked about people coming back in time and seeing lots of duplicates of each other. Well, you know, if there's a bit of doubt that well, actually maybe it's not me that history remembers, but somebody else who looks like me or, or even a double of me, maybe I'm not invulnerable. So this is really interesting thing that goes backwards and forwards about am I invulnerable? then of course there's the the fatalism of I am going to die at this particular time and I guess if you wanted to play that to a conclusion you might sort of say let's talk about the circumstances of your death but um, I think it's more interesting to talk about time travelers who know they're not going to die and so what do they do with those bodies Um, how careless are they with their own bodies just a thought Right, I normally finish these episodes with uh, talking about other media, so the last thing I want to talk about is some time travel media. Um, So there's a couple of good books. Um, There's Bid Time Return by uh, Richard Matheson, who wrote I Am Legend, The Incredible Shrinking Man. That is about travelling back in time by... Basically, self-hypnosis, by making your environment look like an environment from a different age and therefore hypnotising yourself that you are in a different age. and It works. Um, Jack Finney's time and again works a bit like that as well. Now, in both of those cases, obviously, it's a one-way trip, or kind of. I mean, you're going to be... uh, you're going to need to be quite specific about where you're traveling to you know you you might need a need a paper uh, or other other bits of media from a particular time that encourage you to think that you're not only in a particular age you're at a particular time and place that would serve a similar function as the Anubis gates and I think you could combine the two if you wanted to say well what is a, a means of time travel that makes use of a series of gates that are in very specific places rather than having to have a high energy beam that converts you into honorary tachyons then beams you into a different part of uh, the time stream um, instead you gathered enough information about the different points of time and then you hypnotized yourself to believe that you were there and that's how you got there. I mean, you can only do it if you were in a spot where a gate was and you hypnotized yourself to believe that I'm no longer in 1983, I'm in 1810 in the same place. I think that would that would also work. So similar kinds of ideas. Um, the other bit of media, time travel related, um, not Doctor Who. Uh, I, I do recommend the Grognard Files episode on Doctor Who fantastic but not doctor i'm going to talk about time cop with jean-claude van Dam, which is a bit dated especially his mullet but um it does a couple of really great things because the the time travel that happens in time cop is really only happening between two eras and it's all about uh changing the fortunes of a politician um and there's a lot of a lot of things like i think i heard recently someone talking about how the 80s was sort of an extreme satire on populism and neo-fascism and our own political situation has now overtaken that and is more extreme than it is portrayed in say robocop and i think time cops are a bit like that as well there's um there's this idea about uh, a white supremacist party which is completely Laughable at the time because it it just sounds so goofy, and yet, well, we know what the situation is right now. Um, But anyway, time copy is interesting because it's got this whole thing about um, people policing the time streams and stopping people taking advantage and changing time in order to improve their own personal fortunes. Um, I think there's an interesting debate to be had as to whether or not that's a problem um and i'll talk in a moment about uh continuum but anyway time cop that it's it's not actually a bad movie it's got a really good ending um really tense and uh really exciting because it's uh it's the point where we have multiple versions of both both villains and heroes in the same place um climbing all over a house and hunting each other um in a in the middle of a storm pretty exciting stuff actually but um there are periods where they go forward in time sorry there are periods where they go backwards in time to change something and then when they return then um, history has actually changed now to do that in a role-playing game i think would be tremendously difficult because you've uh, i think the only way you could really do that is to say we've got multiple branching timelines but they're very specific and we have set up the scenario in the past that certain triggers will trigger going to certain timelines and that I think is the only way that you can do that in a manageable fashion but nevertheless Time Cop does it really nicely because it, it picks up a lot of small motifs certain characters change the funding of the time agency changes the way that people dress changes slightly I think actually uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed it I, I don't think I've seen it since I, uh, since I watched in the cinema but it's pretty good you could look at time Cop and say, well, I want to make a really tight time travel scenario that's just based around a couple of points in time. What are the events that would change the future? And then see how the characters can influence that. They can witness going backwards and forwards between the two points. And indeed, they can visit those points as often as they like, in theory. Last bit of media I want to mention. Um, I've mentioned Continuum and Narcissist role-playing games before. I don't want to say too much about them, but... The most important thing here is that there are two competing ideologies about whether or not you should be selfish when you travel through time. And Continuum is all about preserving the established timeline. And Narcissist is all about personal freedom. Narcissist, I think, is the more interesting one because of the way that time travel happens Um But really, they're a mirror image of each other. So there's a whole load of uh, rules that the continuum and the narcissist view um, that they must abide by to try and travel safely. Um, So the continuum, one of the things the continuum says, if you meet a future version of yourself, you must trust them implicitly because they know more than you. And... What the narcissists say is that if you meet the future version of yourselves, they are the last person you should trust. And I think that is extremely applicable to here if you were to introduce the idea of people travelling backwards and forwards in time and meeting more versions of themselves. Um, Continuum and narcissist, of course, are the we can time travel anywhere type of thing, which I think is... um, it requires so much crunch that it's pretty much unworkable. However, if you took the the Continuum Stroke Narcissist timeline of events, which goes all the way through the various zodiacal ages, and you had the Anubis Gates type thing where you had a ripples of gates that go through different places, you could visit those with a lot less confusion, and you could still probably make use of some of the ideas like, um, you know, spanning and the uh, fragmentation of your your person uh, and multiple people um finding alternate versions of yourselves going to alternate timelines i think that would all work but the the great thing about the anubis gate setup is it would just make it a lot less work to write a scenario about so anyway those are my thoughts on the Anubis Gates I can't recommend it highly enough Tim Powers is a great author Um, I recommend some of the other things he's written Um, Last Call is one of them Uh, he's written on Stranger Tides as well which I don't think is a masterwork but get it on Kindle Um, and that's it I want to say a big, big thank you to my patrons. Uh, I really appreciate your ongoing support. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so on Patreon. There'll be a link in the show notes. And um, there are various perks of joining. The main one is you'll get to see something I've written each month. This month's offering is The Six Chambers of My Heart, and I'm going to produce some public-facing blurb for that so you can have a taste of, of you know what I'm writing and see if that interests you. But however you want to support the podcast, um, if you can you know, do the usual like, share, subscribe, promote, that would be much appreciated. Give a review on iTunes, whatever you can do. But anyway, I appreciate you listening. Music for this podcast, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com. Bye.